The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do or management of WWDB, its staff or management. Good morning, Philadelphia. This is the Middle East Forum Radio Hour on WWDB AM Talk 860. Uh, our lead host, Greg Roman, is in transit from Europe, uh, but I'm uh, Gary C. Gamble of the Middle East Forum, and I'm joined by our producer, Marilyn Stern. Good morning. Uh, we have two great guests today. Uh, the first is Saeed Ghassaminejad, who is Senior Iran and Financial Economics Advisor at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And our second is uh, Bilal Wahab, who is... Uh, the Nathan and Esther K. Uh, Wagner Fellow at the Washington Institute, where he focuses on governance in Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan. But before we get to them, uh, let's go over some of the recent news. There's been a lot of it lately. Uh, mass protests have erupted across Iran after the government admitted over the weekend that its missiles were responsible for the downing of a Ukrainian airliner carrying mostly Iranian passengers last Wednesday. Uh, this development really uh, puts the lie to claims that the killing of, of Qasem Soleimani would bring an end to the Iranian protest movement. It, it's come back with a vengeance. And in related news, uh, protests in Lebanon, uh, Iranian-dominated Lebanon, have reignited. Uh, it hasn't happened yet in Iraq, but we're going to ask our second guest about that when he appears. British ambassador in Tehran, Robert uh, McCare was arrested and detained for several hours on Saturday, accused of inciting protests. So we can file this one under reasons not to reopen the U.S. Embassy in, in Tehran. Galar Jabari, an anchorwoman for Iranian state television, resigned on Monday, later apologizing to the Iranian people on Instagram for, quote, lying to you on TV for 13 years. Uh, since then, another anchor has resigned, and I believe three or four uh, broadcast journalists have resigned. So this this could be a very interesting trend, because if there's no one to read the lies to the Iranian people on state television, then or, or, if, or if the people who read the lies keep changing, that's obviously going to be a problem for the regime. Also, Iran's only female Olympic medalist, Taekwondo champion Kimia Alizada, defected last week. Meanwhile, Iraqi Prime Minister Ab, uh, Adel Abdel Mahdi on Friday called for the U.S. to, quote, safely withdraw troops from Iraq, this coming days after Iraq's parliament was pressured by Iran to vote in favor of it. This has uh, sparked a debate in the U.S. about, uh, one, wh whether we should withdraw from Iraq, obviously. that's That is a long-running debate. But two, there have been proposals to... Uh, redeploy, if push comes to shove, U.S. troops in Iraq to Iraqi Kurdistan. This is something we'll ask uh, our second guest as well. White House spokesman Hogan Gidley was roundly criticized on Friday for comparing the Trump administration's killing of General uh, Soleimani earlier this month to the Obama administration's killing of the late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. Quote, just do a Google search, man, Obama didn't kill Gaddafi, Libyans did, said Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy. I don't know, bombing Gaddafi's personal convoy 
while rebels that you've armed and uh, trained torture and kill him after he limps away. Then having Secretary of State Hillary Clinton come out and say, quote, we came, we saw he died, close quote. That's maybe there's a fine line there, but that sounds to me like killing Gaddafi. Um, in other news, uh, eight Israeli F-16s were damaged on Thursday when their underground hangars flooded following intense rainfall in southern Israel. You know, if, if someone had told me during the, the, the first week of the Yom Kippur War that the next big calamity to hit the Israeli Air Force would be due to a spot of rain, uh, I wouldn't have believed it. But it, it's remarkable that in 50 years, no enemy of Israel has damaged eight uh, planes in one day. Um, so th- th- there, there, there is a big debate. I'm just going to go off on a little rant here before we get to our guests. There, there's a big debate, uh, ongoing, vigorous debate, um, over the question of what the implications of killing uh, General Soleimani are going to be. Um, on the one hand, you have people that argue that the more pressure you put on the regime, uh, the more problems it's, it's going to have, that, that more pressure is always good. Our first guest, Saeed Ghassami uh, Najad, is a, pr- a proponent of that, certainly when it comes to economic sanctions. The more sanctions, the better. Um, on the other side, there are, there are those who argue that, it, that there's, there's a threshold beyond which if, if you put too much pressure on a regime, you're going to create a rally around the flag effect. And in the immediate aftermath of Soleimani's killing, we saw videos of, of what looked like millions of Iranians attending his funeral um, and to a lesser, lesser degree uh, appearing uh, in Iranian cities, um, visibly mourning Soleimani. <clears throat> On the other hand, uh, since the killing of the, since the downing of the Ukrainian uh, airliner, on most most of the passengers on which were Iranian, not Ukrainian. That's why this is a, a very critical issue in Iran. Since then, we've seen what also seemed to be masses and masses of Iranians coming out against the regime. And of course, before all of this, there was a very large mass protest movement in Iran. In I think something like seven hundred different locations, major cities. Uh, non-major cities, um, and so from from an outside perspective, it, it there there seems to be a, a, a uh, dichotomy between what seem like masses of Iranians who support the regime, or, or at least mourn the loss of of Soleimani, and masses of uh, Iranians who seem to not like the regime. And, and have come out very vigorously opposed to it. And it, it, it's easy to assume there's no overlap between the two. Um, it would be interesting if there is. We'll ask our, our first guest about, about that. Gary, if I could interject. Absolutely. I don't think there's any doubt that this is restored deterrence, which was sorely lacking under the Obama administration. So I think there's a large portion of people here and abroad that support it. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's no question that, and I have to admit this surprised me. There's no question that deterrence has been restored, because the the only Iranian retaliation has been that missile strike on U.S. Uh, bases in Iraq several days later, 
And it turned out, you know, I, for one, I was absolutely surprised that no military, U.S. military personnel were killed or wounded. But then it, it, it came out a few days later that the reason none were killed or wounded is that the Iranians communicated to the Americans well in advance of the strike, giving them the, the exact time of it. Um, and so U.S. military personnel took cover, et cetera. And so Iran wanted to do something that it could, you know, show its citizens, okay, we've responded, you know, they, they can show, uh, you know, video footage of, of missiles flying through the air. They can even show video footage of damage uh, to these bases, which looked, it looked like an absolute mess. If, 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 if there had been no warning, there absolutely would have been casualties. Um, so if the, if the Iranians, after the killing of what someone who, without question, like as far as regime figures go, was very revered, more revered than, than Khamenei, the supreme leader, arguably, if in response to that, they are trembling in their boots about the prospect of killing another American and eliciting another ferocious response from uh, someone who, who they consider unpredictable. You know, there, Daniel Pipes mentioned in an inter- our president mentioned in an interview last week, somewhat critically, that, da- that Donald Trump is unpredictable, but that can work to our advantage very often in foreign affairs. The Iranians, uh, absolutely, the deterrence has been distorted, at least for the time being. Once the Ayatollah said this was a slap against America, but it was so pathetic, I think it was a self-slap in his own face. Right. And, of course, you know, the, the fly in the ointment of their missile strike on, the, on, on our bases in Iraq was that they accidentally shot down a Ukrainian airliner in the process. Um, and then, of course, denied having done it for, I don't know, two or three days. It was only after video – it was only after video – of the downing was literally trending on social media throughout the world that they, you know, came out and and, and fessed up to it. Well, our next guest is going to be covering a question that he raised in one of his articles about the broader strategic question arising from Soleimani's death. Yep. Is whether it signals the end of Washington's passivity, sometimes described as strategic patience, in the face of Iranian and Iranian-backed terrorism. Right. That is that is. Uh, Sort of the the, the big uh, the big open question, and I think we have to take a break now. But we'll be back with our first guest shortly. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other. 
for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to the Middle East Forum Radio Hour on uh, WWDB AM Talk 860 in Philly. Our first guest is Saeed Ghassaminajad, who's the Senior Iran and Financial Economics Advisor at the Foundation for Democracies. Uh, he, he was born and raised in Iran, and, and while attending the University of Tehran, uh, played a significant role in the Iranian dissident movement, so he, he should have some insights about what we're seeing today. Saeed, are you there? Thank you for having me. So, listen, before we get to the sanctions, which is sort of your your specialty, you're the lead expert on that, um, I wanted to ask you about Trump's President Trump's tweet the other day, which I saw that you noted on Twitter um, was the most liked Persian language uh, tweet ever on Twitter. This is, this is where President Trump expressed solidarity uh, with the protesters in Iran. Um, yeah, I have to admit, at the time, I thought, okay, this is, you know, Trump claiming credit <laughs> for something again. It's not going to have a big effect. But I was absolutely wrong. It seems to be having a huge effect. Uh, can you tell us more about it? I think it's very important that uh, President Trump showed uh, support to Iranian, for Iranian people. And because in 2009, uh, Iranian uh, chanted Obama, Obama with them or with us. And Obama was actually with them. Uh, this time, Iranians feel that uh, there's a president in the, in the United States uh, who, not that they can, you know, 100% rely on, but he's not just like Obama. He, he's, uh, he's uh, expressing his support for the people, for the protesters, and I think that that's, uh, that's something uh, that makes make them very happy. I, I also want to make a point about the Soleimani I was listening. Uh, I think there are some misunderstandings about what happened in Soleimani's funeral. First, we really don't know how many people attended. So, and there was a very big mis- disinformation campaign here in the West. For example, New York Times said in the city of Awaz, there was a 20 miles long line. Right. Uh, People, uh, Ahabaz is not, it's not possible. It's not 20 miles long. Use, uh, no, people actually use Google Earth and the aerial footage, and they saw this that it was a one-mile line. Right. And if, if it was 20 miles, it, it, it meant that it should have been like 1.5 million people. Right. And Ahabaz has like 1.4 million population. I remember so, I, I remember there was a video trending where it, it followed the people and it seemed to go on and on, but you're saying that was misleading. That, that people used that video to right. grab us and they said this was a one mile uh, line. Right. So uh, I, I, that's the first point. So there was a very big disinformation campaign. The second point is that so this is a regime which has like one million people in, in its armed forces. Uh, it employs lots of people. And when they want to mobilize, they, they close all the schools, right. they told all, all their employees, you should go. I saw, I saw pictures of uh, professors in the universities sending to students that if you go to Soleimani's funeral and you take a picture 
and you send it to me, I will give you this credit or that credit. So they really mobilized, right. and we don't know how many how many people were there. So I I don't think it was a it was a very special thing. Right. Uh, so so I guess a, a, a related question is is this. For, for the average for the average Iranian dissident, the kind of person who, um, not not middle of the road, but the kind of person who is, is is active, who protests when there's an opportunity to, who absolutely wants to see an end of the regime, wh- what does he or she want to see from the Trump administration right now? I think I think they they want to see the political support. Uh, many people that I talk to, they want they they want to see the sanctions be kept. And what they want is that they, they, they're really afraid that there will be negotiation and then they reach a deal and the sanctions are lifted and, you know, then the regime goes back to uh, its bad behavior. Because what's, whenever this regime is under pressure, uh, you know, they, they, they try to make a deal with, with the best. We saw it during the war. We saw it in 2003 uh, <clears throat> agreement that they had. We saw it in 2015 agreement that they had. And then they, whenever they get the money, then they go back to their bad behavior. Right. So I, I noticed in a recent uh, article, you, you sort of, you sort of uh, uh, discredited the idea. You know, t- 10, 15 years ago, there was a there was a very prominent view called the kiss of death theory that that if that if America comes out and openly embraces opposition movements that that will subject them to uh, you know the greater risk of being arrested or or greater uh, risk of regime backlash. But you've argued that that that's really not a factor in Iran that 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 there there, there there's no drawback to coming out and vigorously supporting uh, the opposition in Iran? No, there isn't. They actually, you know, they, the regime doesn't need any excuse to, you know, accuse people of being uh, Israeli agent or American agent or anything like that. So, and I think that the argument has been mainly pushed by uh, the regime's uh, PR agents themselves. Right. So, and the regime is very good in creating fake opposition, and I think uh, it also has been partly pushed by them. Right. So, okay, let, uh, let's turn to the sanctions. This is something you've you've written about extensively. Um, f- f- okay, first first of all, I, I one thing I noticed in one of your recent articles is is you pointed out that the sanctions have created an uh, an unusual effect, which Americans are familiar with from the 1970s, called stagflation, which is when your economy is in recession, but unlike most recessions, which tend to coincide with low inflation, you have hyper-high inflation. Um, and of course, that was devastating to the United States in the 1970s. Uh, why, why is that happening in Iran? And because of that, do you think the, the impact of the sanctions is going to be greater than sanctions have been in the past? Uh, yes, yes, and it, it's it's part of the, the regime's fiscal and monetary policy. So since they came to power like 41 years ago, 
I think almost every year, maybe with the exception of one or two, Iran had a two-digit inflation. Right. This inflation is very high, but they, they, they are so bad in running the economy. The inflation has been like two digits uh, almost for four decades now. Um, when, the, when, when, the, when Trump administration left the deal in May 2018 and then started the uh, maximum pressure strategy in November 2018, his critics have uh, made uh, a few predictions. All of them turned to be wrong. First was that the unilateral, the U.S. unilateral sanctions are not working. This was backed actually by lots of academic papers right. published in very prestigious journals. That turned out to be wrong, I will explain. The second one was that this will unite uh, the people behind the regime, the royal on the flag, uh, Abbas Milani and Michael McFaul wrote about it. Many, many people said that. That was definitely wrong. And the third one was that it will actually isolate the United States, not Iran. Right. That's also wrong. The, the economic one. So we have 40% inflation. We have two years of consecutive uh, GDP contraction. The Iran economy almost will be 15% smaller than when the maximum pressure strategy started. Iran, Iran has limited access to hard currency. Uh, we see a significant drop in, the, in, in their oil exports. We see the end of the inflow of, of foreign direct investment into Iran. So the Islamic regime is really under immense economic pressure now. Second, they said there will be a royal Iran flag. Uh, the people will unite and no, that was wrong. Actually, under since Trump came to power, we had three waves, waves of protest. Two of them have been the largest ones since the beginning of the revolution. And I don't have the data, but I think they, they were actually larger than the revolution themselves in terms of how widespread they are, they are in, in how many cities they are. They are. So <clears throat> that was wrong, too. The third one, they said that the uh, U.S. will be isolated, not Iran. That's wrong. We see in Lebanon, we see in Iraq. That Iran is uh, Tehran is actually under immense pressure there. The Lebanese on the streets, the uh, Iraqis are on the streets, right. and what we just saw yesterday that Europeans had triggered the dispute mechanism. It shows that despite what they say in public, they are actually siding with Trump now because that dispute mechanism means uh, before October 2020, when the international arms embargo will end they are going to most probably announce that the deal is dead. UK is already saying that. I think Paris and Berlin may not publicly say it, but they will do it. Right. Um, so, no, notably, the, the sanctions on Iran, as, as you mentioned, have, have, one, been more effective than sanctions were under the Obama administration. And two, been more effective than the large majority of, of you know, so-called pundits were predicting. My understanding is that what, what everybody failed to, to, to properly estimate was the degree to which the rest of the world would, would work to avoid American secondary sanctions. Um, that you know, it, it doesn't matter so much if, if Britain or France impose sanctions if British and French companies are scared to death of losing access to American markets. Is that the main factor, or are there other 
considerations. No, that, 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 that's it. That's, that's, that's basically it. Right. And of course, you know, famously, the, the Trump's ambassador in Germany has, has gotten all sorts of diplomatic complaints because he calls private companies individually and berates them into, into complying. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's uh, certainly a big surprise. So walk us through quickly. Uh, I guess the, the other factor is that the Trump administration has not issued as many oil waivers as the Obama administration, right? Yes, that's it. And that's, that's again, another uh, subject that the pundits and experts have, have been wrong. They have been saying that if U.S. does that, the oil price will go to 100 and above, right. and that was the first one. And the second one, that these countries are will not uh, obey U.S. They will continue buying oil from Iran. Right. They were wrong. The data showed that there was there, there, there was excess oil in the market, so there shouldn't have been any problem. And we have, we didn't see any problem. And even China, which is you know still still buying oil from Iran, but the number is much lower now. Right. So the so everyone uh, seems to be you know working with the U.S. now on that front. Saeed, this is Marilyn Stern with a question. You mentioned China. Uh, how is all this supposed to be affecting Russia? What do you think their uh, response is going to be with the increased sanctions, and how are they going to play it? Uh, in, in terms of Iran sanctions, yeah. So the Russia and Iran, they don't have uh, they don't have lots of economic uh, deals and trade with, with each other. The economies are very similar, uh, so they both are energy energy exporter, and they both you know make weapons and things like that. Obviously, Iran makes very bad weapons, <laughs> Russia better ones. But their, econ- it's, their economies are very similar, so it's not that they really can help each other. Uh, and because of the lack of really uh, trade between them, uh, it, it didn't affect them. Actually, it helped the Russia, I think. The sanctions on Iran have helped uh, Russia's uh, energy industry, most probably. Right. So do you think this bodes well for getting a better deal to pull Russia and China aboard? I, I don't know if they, so they, 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 they both have like a political uh, reason to, you know, show, show the world that they are, uh, they are not uh, doing what Trump wants them to do, at least, you know, saying it. So, and I don't think we, we need them. I think if Trump wins and you have four more years, Iran's economy is in such a bad shape now that either the, 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 the economy will collapse or they, they should come back to the negotiation table. My, my own preference is that the U.S. does not make a deal with them and let, them, let the economy collapse and the regime collapse. And the reason is that the moment that there is a deal, they get the money, and they have they have all the time in the world. How many has been there for 30 years? You don't we don't have it here. So, the moment that you have a type of President Sanders, for example, right, he's not going to put pressure on them. So they get the money, and whatever deal you make with them, then you cannot enforce enforce it that easily at that time. So I think the best to deal with them would be to let them collapse. Right. And so you, you, you're, you're a proponent of 
increasing the sanctions even more, right? Eliminating waivers entirely? Yes, as, as, as much as possible. So I think, for example, we have waiver for Iraq, and the Iraqis are not really helpful, the government, not the people. And I don't understand why do we have such waivers for the government of Iraq, for example. Right. No, we'll be able to get into that with our next guest. Said, thank you so much for appearing. We're, we're running out of time. We'd love to have you back sometime to share more of your insights. And thank you so much for having me. Okay, great. Back with our next guest shortly. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Good morning. Welcome back to the Middle East Forum Radio Hour on WWDB AM Talk 860 in Philadelphia. Our next guest is Bilal Wahab, who is the, the uh, Nathan and Esther K. Wagner Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, where he focuses on governance in Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan. He's taught at the American University of Iraq in Suleimani, where he established the Center for Development and National Resources. Uh, and he writes extensively in Arabic and Kurdish media. Uh, Bilal, are, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so let, let's uh, delve uh, right into this. Um, so something I've noticed, to, to the surprise of a lot of observers, anti, anti-government protests in Iraq re-erupted with a vengeance in the wake of the uh, Iranian government. Uh, Iranian government's admission of the of the downing of the Ukrainian airliner. I noticed yesterday there were reports of uh, protests reigniting in Iranian-dominated Lebanon. Do you, do you see a return to mass anti-government protests in Iraq? That's sort of the third of the three countries where we we saw a lot of protests before the killing of Soleimani. Uh, right. So. Protests in Iraq started actually on October 1st, and they've been going on. I mean, they ebbed and flowed in size, but they never ceased. These protests started 
uh, against government corruption, uh, lack of services, lack of job opportunities for the youth. But because of the very heavy-handed government crackdown uh, that uh, the, uh, the Associated Press reported that was orchestrated directly by Qasem Soleimani, the protest turned from a grievances-based uh, uh, protest into almost anti-Iran, if not exclusively anti-Iran uh, protest. Uh, you know, moving from the pervasive corruption in Baghdad, but increasingly against what Iraqis perceive as Tehran's violent effort to, uh, you know, not only repress the unrest at home, but the bigger picture of how uh, the Iraqi state uh, is weakened because Iran inside Iraq seems to be supporting a parallel militia state and a parallel economy the same way that the IRGC, the Revolutionary Corps in, in Iran operates. And the, uh, the younger web-connected generation of, of, of Iraqis, not only the, their own government failure doesn't make any sense, uh, you know, a leadership that has failed miserably to translate the country's extraordinary petroleum wealth into right. general prosperity uh, on one hand. But on the other, when they look into the future, the trajectory is actually worse with militias replacing the military and corruption going from, uh, you know, political party corruption into militia corruption. So instead of uh, lining pockets of Iraqi politicians, militias have started lining the pockets of Iranian politicians. And then, so, so the protest became, uh, you know, larger in size, and the, uh, the target changed from Iraq's own corrupt politicians to include the uh, Iranian backers of those uh, politicians. And, uh, and of course, um, uh, they have managed to change the election law. They have managed to force the prime minister to resign. And they've been calling for fresh elections uh, as soon as possible in order to ensure that uh, the next Iraqi government is going to be accountable and representative of the Iraqi people rather than the next door neighbor. Right. Um, so, what exactly is the connection between Iran and, and corruption? You know, I, I, I've studied the Syrian occupation of Lebanon, and then the, the Syrians, the, you know, Lebanon was corrupt before the Syrians uh, took over, but the Syrians managed to make it much, much worse. You know, the, the scale, the, the complexity of the corruption. Um, is that the case in Iraq? I mean, do, do you think if there was no Iranian influence, uh, do you think Iraq's civil society is strong enough to to sort of rid itself of, of corruption and other associated problems? I mean, Iran is not necessarily, you know, the main cause of corruption in Iraq. Unfortunately, Iraq's, uh, you know, own political leaders and, and parties have, um, have, have done enough damage and harm uh, to uh, from from you know the, the structural issues of Iraq being a petro state an oil dependent state and therefore by nature uh, without proactive action you'll have a very large and bloated public sector at the expense of private enterprise right. that is definitely a problem that Iraq has uh, it's also inherited from a legacy of Saddam Hussein in which every college graduate is owed quote unquote. Uh, a government job, and, and literally, if the Iraqi government were to spend the entirety of its 
budget on on public employees, you wouldn't be able to absorb the 700,000 plus young men and women who enter the job market. So that is sort of a structural issue. Uh, but also, unlike under Saddam Hussein, where you had at least one centralized authority, and even if that authority was corrupt, it would be you know one man stealing or one family stealing. Now you have a diffused uh, political system in which uh, you know a, a patronage network of political parties that vie in elections to get into into power, and then every political party that gets you know in charge of a ministry of health and ministry of electricity and ministry of education, they use those ministries to then reward the loyalists, and that's how the machine keeps operating. So rather than governance and policy and delivering services being the main goal of, of the government, it's ensuring whose bread you know, party X needs to butter so they can be re-elected in the next round of elections. And basically that puts patronage uh, as more important than, than services. And that's why in a, in a country like Iraq, uh, the budget for 2019 was over $110 billion, and still a fifth of the population lives under the line of poverty. Uh, if you look at the protests that started as of October 1st, the, the champion of the protest is this uh, three-wheeler transportation, like mini car. It's not a car. It's not a motorcycle. It's a three-wheeler. And they call it tuk-tuk. And tuk-tuk has played this significant role, has become the, the symbol of the of the protest movement because they've been operating as you know food vendors as ambulances. But if you right. think about it, why Baghdad's main means of transportation is a three wheeler? It's not Bangladesh. It's not some you know large populated dense uh, country like India. What are the metro systems? What are the bus systems? What are the public transportation systems? So people look at the prospect of their country. Uh, you know, because they're now web-connected, they can read English, uh, and uh, they compare themselves to the other Muslim Arab countries next door. And the Iraq that they see doesn't make a lot of sense to them. So that is that is on Iraq. But where Iran exacerbates the situation is it in, it plays the role of broker among all of these diverse actors. Right. And it ensures that, especially with the 2018 elections, we've had a shift from... Politic, from classical political parties, who at least, you know, I mean, as corrupt as they are, the politicians and they play politics, and the power shifted from them to militias who managed to translate their victories in the battlefield, overblown as they may be, into political seats in the, uh, in the Iraqi state, but were increasingly trying to then translate that into economic benefit. Now, what that meant is they got into the import business, Iraq became a clearing uh, ground for cheap, uh, low-quality Iranian products because they, on the one hand, they would monopolize all of these import businesses. On the other hand, they would stunt the emergence of, uh, of local business, agriculture, enterprise, and industries inside Iraq to benefit Iran. And that is what the Iraqi youth saw right through it. And they, uh, they went to the streets to, to protest this. So Iran plays the protector of the corrupt and, and uh, in a way undermines the ability of the democratic process of elections uh, to be able to allow the Iraqis to replace this corrupt leadership with a, with a better, more democratic, more accountable leadership. And that is where the anger at uh, the public Iraqi anger at their own leadership 
somehow extends all the way to Tehran. <clears throat> Does Iraq still have a viable electoral system? In other, in other words, I, I don't know when the next elections are, but if 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 mm. if there's uh, as much anti-government uh, sentiment as we see now, um, mm-hmm. can, can we expect that to translate into uh, change in parliament, or has has corruption and and, and other factors mm-hmm. interfered? So, with so corruption—that that's actually an excellent question. Corruption is one reason why the Iraqi public has lost confidence in elections. The turnout in the uh, in the early elections of 2005, so had two elections in 2005 and then 2010, and then later 2014, were much higher uh, than the 2018. The, the official turnout for 2018 election that resulted to this government that now the people are protesting, the official is 42%. But many of the Iraqi civil society activists that I have talked to, and I, I myself was uh, an international monitor one, uh, monitoring those elections, uh, some, as some, some say that that is a bloated number. Uh, the actual participation rate in some parts of Iraq is at 12%, in some others is at 18%. So, uh, so turnout was very low, in part because uh, people lost confidence in the system. And there are a few reasons for that. One, uh, the election system caters and favors those who are already in power, the, the incumbency factor. And that's for the very uh, reason that I alluded to earlier. If you are in the system, if, you have, if you're in control of a ministry, for example, or two ministries, that means that you have access to Iraq's only source of revenue, which is oil revenue, which then becomes the budget and then uh, gets doled out into, into ministries. So the political party who is, let's say, in charge of the Ministry of Health manages to A, hire their, his, you know, their own cronies into that ministry, B, monopolize all of the government contracts out of that ministry, and then C, and more importantly for elections, which is the key in your question, then they use that money, that corrupt money, uh, not only to line their pockets, but then to invest it in uh, TV stations, newspapers, what Iraqis call social media armies, and these are the trolls and the bots, in which allow them to create an aura and then allow them to be uh, re-elected. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, Many of the militias who managed to win in the 2018 elections, they had a role. I'm not saying that they didn't have any role, but they had a role, albeit a minor role, in liberating parts of Iraq from ISIS. But the majority of the fighting and and the dying were actually done by Iraq's official and formal security forces. If you look at Mosul, for example, the force... Uh, that liberated the city was the counterterrorism service, which is the the uh, you know the most elite force that the the Iraqi government has. They did m- almost m- like almost all of the fighting. They lost half of their force, and of course it was all of the operation was uh, supported by uh, United States-led uh, international anti-ISIS alliance. They did over 20,000 air raids. And what the militias had a role was in holding some of the towns and the territories that were liberated. But if you watch Iraqi media today, you feel and you think that the militias alone, not the U.S., not the Iraqi military, not the Peshmerga, but the Iraqi militias with the help of Qasem Soleimani are the only powers that have liberated Iraq from ISIS. 
And why can they do that? Because they have the media, and they have the social, and they have the, the Instagram access, and they have people like Qasem Soleimani who go into a liberated town, take a couple of selfies, post on Instagram, and so they have this kind of ripple effect, and they have created this aura, and that allows them to, on the one hand, discourage others from turning out to vote and encourage their own cronies because literally their job at the you know exemplary Minister of Health that I was talking about literally depends on it. So in this kind of system, the confidence in the democracy, in the election of being able to change governments and faces has been, has been shaken. And that's why the protest movement's success, the, the major success was to uh, change the uh, electoral commission uh, which oversees and signs of the, le the, the legality of the election because uh, previously it was appointed by the very people who are in government. So you have a machine that can basically reproduce itself. So they managed to do that, to change that. And they also managed to change the, elec the electoral system into a, uh, a one-man, one-vote rather than uh, you know, the previous system that catered into larger political parties. And um, and they also narrowed down the area of representation. So those are some of some of the successes that the protest movement has already managed to do. But as long as you have militias on the streets with the ability to kill and maim with impunity, and they have so far killed over 500 Iraqi protesters and injured over 22,000, and they have gotten away with it, as long as they can do that, I think the electoral system in Iraq and probably the larger uh, achievement of democracy will always be at jeopardy. How how free is the Iraqi media? Has it? I, I know five or six years ago, at least it, you know portions of it were impressively uh, vibrant. Has that changed? I mean, to to tie this to uh, the conversation we're just we were just having. You, I mean, you have diversity of media. Uh, you have competitive media. You can hear different narratives. Right. Uh, but I'm not sure that amounts to be to it being free. So, for example, one party with a, you know part of a patronage network of Party X, with the militias and the protection and the you know uh, seats in parliament uh, and access to government, uh, can compete or or counter a narrative by you know media station Y which has equally members of parliament and militias and protections and access to the revenue. That is possible. And we have, you know, we have that during election seasons and the campaigns. But where, uh, where we don't have freedom of media is when, for example, just, just you know, this, this weekend, when uh, uh, a very well-known Iraqi uh, journalist comes out and says, we want a homeland we want the Iraqi government to be serving the interests of Iraq, not the interests of Washington and not the interests of Tehran. And uh, he criticizes the militias that act and kill with impunity. And he posts on Facebook. He is literally killed within hours in front of his house in his own car. And that just goes without investigation. That goes without, without anyone you know, paying, paying for it or going to jail for it. And unfortunately, that's not the first time that a reporter gets killed uh, for for using social media. You have uh, uh, you know people who still who still manage to get the the free message across. Unfortunately, are those who have left the country.
I can give you the example of Iraqi political satirist Ahmed al-Bashir. Ahmed al-Bashir has, you know, Allah John Stewart, uh, who pokes, you know, jokes and and undermines the halo around the militias and around all of these political figures that no one can criticize, and he pokes jokes at them and makes them accessible, makes them human. But he cannot produce that show in Iraq. He cannot even air it in Iraq. So, uh, you know, he has fled uh, to, he's fled Iraq, he's been to different countries, just so he can be able to produce his show. And not only him personally, but no Iraqi TV station of all of the, you know, uh, 30-plus media uh, TVs that broadcast out of Iraq dares to air his program. So, believe it or not, is the German... Arabic channel that Ahmed al-Bashir uses to uh, to present his channel to Iraqis. And even when he does that, which is a weekly show, uh, uh, some uh, go, some in, in Iraq go and they try to jam uh, Deutsche Welle's uh, broadcast so Iraqis don't get to watch Ahmed al-Bashir. Why? Because he is the kind of voice that is not attacking one political party or the other, but he is poking holes at the hypocrisy and the corruption of the entirety of the political class and how they're all in collusion against the public, against the national interest. And uh, that kind of message is not acceptable. So the, you know, he has to flee, but others who still operate from within the country either do it in hiding or they have to be very careful. Many of them have, have, have unfortunately been, been assassinated Right. Uh, or killed just throughout this this protest movement, many of them were were killed with, uh, you know, guns with silencers, and there are videos who record them. But unfortunately, the impunity is there, and that is what the Iraqi people are protesting. And this kind of actors that pe- that Iraqis believe Iran uh, Iran protects because they serve the greater uh, the greater interest of making sure that Iraq remains weak and dependent on Iran, both militarily politically and increasingly economically right so so if, so if you're a journalist or you're a satirist and you target one side you can you can exist there because you have the protection and patronage of, of someone else but if you attack all sides or you criticize all sides or you lampoon all sides then you you're sort of uh, at the mercy of, of danger that's exactly right right uh, okay shifting gears a little bit uh, as you know, the uh, the Iraq's parliament uh, last week, uh, or at least the Shiite members of it, uh, called on U.S. forces to leave. The Iraqi prime minister um, re- repeated that request uh, a little more politely. Mm-hmm. And so, that, you know, there's been a debate over the future of U.S. forces in Iraq. And so I guess a, a two-part question here. One, d- do you think that the, the uh, this is going to be a prelude to uh, Iraqi, uh, Iranian-backed Iraqi militias continuing violence against American personnel and interests in Iraq. I guess it's three-part. Two, uh, okay. do you think that's that's going to be untenable for the American presence in Iraq? And three, um, there, there's been some discussion about American forces redeploying to Iraqi Kurdistan, of which you're mm-hmm. a particular expert. Um, th- does that seem like a viable option? Okay, let me tackle uh, one at a time. Um, the game that, that Iran plays well, or plays best, 
it's not reconstruction, it's not governance, it's not service delivery. Uh, unfortunately, the game that they play best is, uh, you know, destab further destabilizing unstable countries, uh, in the words of uh, Thomas Friedman, uh, making failed states uh, greater failures. <laughs> and they do this, uh, they do this by, by using uh, proxies, uh, because that that allows them a level of deniability, and um, and and creates dependency on the proxy site. Uh, they realize that that a a, a head-to-head confrontation with uh, you know with the United States is is not a good idea for them, as as recent events uh, has shown. So, unfortunately, um, on the one hand, in an effort to overshadow the anti-corruption, anti-militia protests. Uh, and on the other, to achieve the stated goal uh, of, uh, of, of of kicking the U.S. military advisors and, and, and personnel out of Iraq, uh, I anticipate that the militia activities uh, will increase uh, unless unless the United States continues to enforce uh, the the premise that any action by militias by Iran's proxies is considered as an action by Iran. And uh, if, line, if this line is maintained, I believe that uh, you know, Iran and the militias would have to, to think twice. Otherwise, right. That destroys the entire premise of Iranian policy, which is that uh, governments tend to let us do what we want as long as we're a couple of degrees of separation from the people firing the trigger. That's right. And, and I, think, I think recent events has, have, have, have poked a hole in that. And, and my question is, if that were to continue, if Iran were to pay uh, the price for actions by, you know, its proxy militias in Iraq and elsewhere, I think that would make both the militias and Iran perhaps uh, think twice. Uh, you know, it's, it's become an adage that, that Iran doesn't have any qualms about fighting the United States to the last Iraqi or to the last Syrian or to the last, you know, Lebanese or Yemeni for that matter. And as long as Iran can get away with with this approach, uh, it has no qualms of, of continuing, uh, you know, this this particular uh, strategy. I think I think that is that is one element, and perhaps another element to this is uh, it's in the interest of the United States not to look at Iraq in the Iran lens or through the Iran lens. Uh, you know, we've been talking just you and I about how the Iraqis, the Iraqi people, are regaining their agency. Uh, demanding a better government, a more accountable government, uh, a government that's accountable to them and not to another country. And, you know, Iran inadvertently rekindled the sense of Iraqi nationalism. These protest movements that have started have really surpassed uh, sectarianism. Uh, they, they have realized that sectarianism has just been, uh, you know, a tool or, or, or a ploy that uh, polit their own political parties, but mainly Iran, has exploited uh, while yeah. everyone has been has been uh, robbing the country off. To your second question, can the U.S. live with this? Well, Iraqis have realized that the existence, the presence of militias, is a matter of national security. Um, the United States has recently uh, excised the cost uh, to Iraq and to Iran about these uh, these act, you know, behaviors. And obviously, uh, you've also seen recent calls. Uh, and, and efforts by Iraq's militias to have, you know, uh, mass 
protests against uh, the United States. There was a, an effort in Parliament that uh, you alluded to. I think that effort itself indicates how weak uh, the uh, the pro-Iran group in Iraq are. Uh, with the threats, every single member of Parliament received a threatening message from Kataib Hezbollah, whose leader was killed along with Qasem Soleimani. And uh, they have Iran itself lobbied every member, on, on the other hand. And yet, when that parliament session was... Ha and, and by the way, the Speaker of Parliament himself was personally attacked and threatened. And yet, the Kurds did not participate. The Sunnis, the majority of the Sunnis did not participate. And uh, not all of the Shias participated. And I have looked into this. And uh, the session itself was fraudulent because it, it did not meet quorum. So there is Iraqi agency, there is a desire inside Iraq uh, to do better. So it's not in the interest of Iraq or the United States to only look at the you know, negative actors, the pro-Iran actors. The United States can still reach out to those Iraqi nationalists who want Iraq to stand on its feet and not be a battleground in a, in a fight between Iran and the United States, or to be a clearing ground for you know, Iranian products. Uh, but that requires more than, you know, just messaging from, from Washington. That requires, you know, being on the ground. One imbalance that you have in the U.S. approach is while you have, you know, some 5,000 U.S. military personnel, the embassy is, is hollowed out. And uh, in, in some report that I saw, that there are only six diplomats uh, at the embassy. So this mismatch um, is not in the interest of U.S. strategy. As for your... Last question uh, about whether the U.S. military can... can We're going to have to wrap up, so you can have about okay. 20, in, 30 in seconds <laughs> quickly. Absolutely. I think it's possible, uh, but it requires a change in the U.S. side and a change in the Kurdish side. On the U.S. side, uh, the United States still looks at, still continues the Obama policy of, of one Iraq policy. Right. So unless the U.S. The US can, can separate between the two... On the other, Iran has shot missiles at Iraqi Kurdistan when the Kurdish members did not show for that parliamentary session that I was talking about that wanted to ask and authorize the government to oust the U.S. forces from Iraq. But also, since Iran is more aggressive, for the Kurds to be able to easily welcome U.S. forces into Kurdistan against Iran's wishes and against Baghdad's wishes, uh, uh, Bilal, they would require the, the, more assurances. Blau, the music is playing, so that, that means we have to end it. This has been great. We'd love to have you back. Uh, very informative. I appreciate it. Until next week, this has been Millie's Forum Radio. Good morning.